Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is Dale Rollins. I'm from San Angelo, Texas. I work with the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and also the Rolling Plains Bob White Brigade. Welcome to Impact Outdoors. I have bird dogs. And... I got good bird dogs, and I tell people, or when I take somebody quail hunting, they'll say, did you train your dogs yourself? I said, I'm not a dog trainer. I said, all I did was give my dogs plenty of opportunity to express their innate potential, and then have them mentor under a good dog, because I think they get so much more learning from their mothers than than I'm ever going to be able to teach them kind of thing. So just being able to put them, you know, give them the, the basic skills, give them the woe command, if you will, and then be able to put them in a situation where competition, and competition in a good way, allows those individuals to grow. We start our kids out, uh, they don't have a regular name tag. Uh, we give them a Ziploc bag with a chunk of coal in it, chunk of charcoal, and just their name is just written on a piece of masking tape. And in order for them to graduate from that and get their real name tag they have to recite what we call their silver bullet an inspirational quotation well that's that's a third of these kids first opportunity to public speaking and they they are deadly afraid I can relate to them I mean I used to feel like that and so when we even empowered those youngsters to be able to realize the uh, the value of the spoken word and the written word and be able to uh, show some mastery of that Again, it's contagious and it helps them throughout life. Hey everybody, welcome back to Impact Outdoors Podcast. We are here at the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit again, um, coming to you with another great episode. And on this week's episode we're releasing today, we're uh, joined by Dr. Dale Rollins. And uh, Dr. Rollins is uh, um, from Oklahoma and really has... um, uh, made quite a name for himself as one of the leading quail experts in probably not just the United States but all over the world and and uh, just does, does so much great research on quail um, 
uh, really has such a storied career working for the extension um, agency here in Texas through Texas AgriLife and, and, and up in Oklahoma as well and uh, with the founding of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of great things that come out of there for quail um, looking at the, the troubles they face in, in today's times and then but you know my favorite thing about Dale Rollins is he is the one who created Texas Brigades and just been such a huge part of our lives for me and my wife here in the past 10, 12 years and, and uh, just really so excited he was able to join us at the summit and be on the show today and uh, a lot of great stories in this one. Um, you're going to laugh quite a bit. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right into this episode with Dr. Dale Rollins. Well, we're uh, back here at the Warren Ranch. And I am joined right now with uh, my good friend, Dale Rollins. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being on Impact Outdoors today. Well, it's good to be with you here. And I'm, I'm anxious to meet the other, other members of your party over here today and learn about podcasting because I have a podcast, yep. but I'm always interested in learning a little bit more about it. Yep. Well, we've, uh, we've got a great group of people here um, from all across the United States, and it's been a phenomenal couple days so far. And uh, looking forward to what all comes out of this uh, summit and just the relationships that are built. You know, that's the whole reason for behind doing this this thing starting last year was uh, creating a network opportunity for people that normally won't be getting together, you know, especially in the days we're in today right. with this pandemic that we're hopefully hopefully out of now and uh, trying to get back some sort of normalcy, even though we're battling fuel prices that are unfathomable right now for some people so but um but yeah it's good to have you on the show i've been wanting to have you on the podcast since i started and uh glad to glad to get you on here today so you've had a pretty uh incredible career up to this point haven't you well i've i tell people i went to school went to college for nine years and i often wink at them and say i could have been a real doctor uh but i i don't have any uh misgivings about the the occupation that I took, I tell people my vocation, which is wildlife and specifically quail, and my avocation, which is quail hunting, are one and the same. So I share a common bond with my bird dogs, and there's not a whole lot of people that can say that. So yeah, I've been blessed in that respect. Yeah. Well, you've, uh, <clears throat> I met you back in the summer of 2010 for the first time at Rolling Plains Bob White Brigade, and, um, you're you're the founder of Texas Brigades, and you have changed my life and the life of my wife's for the better. And you know, I want to thank you for that right off the bat. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, it's always good to hear uh, from a you know satisfied customer, so to speak. <laughs> and it's always good to hear testimonials. You know, mm-hmm. and and we live on testimonials. When I say we are, our various committees. When we hear that so and so attended the brigades fifteen years ago, and now they're an attorney in Jackson, Mississippi, but they still fall back on some of the things that they learned when they were fifteen years old yeah. in the brigades. Uh, we call that heart medicine. Mm-hmm. And we're always looking for a, a jigger of heart medicine. Yep, and it, it's truly special. Um, I talk about brigades a lot during these programs with people and stuff and just kind of the impact that it has on not only the kids, um, but the adults, the volunteers and everything. I mean, it's a, it's it's all around, everybody that's involved with it. 
you know. I tell people that if, if you'll give us a half day, you'll be impressed. Mm-hmm. If you stay all day, you'll be amazed. If you stay overnight, you'll be hooked. You'll be an indentured servant to the brigades, and that may have been how we recruited you. I don't it recall. is. <laughs> I never thought I would be running uh, a camp with Texas brigades with my wife So when we first started volunteering. So um, it's been an incredible journey. So, But, um, you know, it didn't start out with brigades for you. Like you've, you've, uh, You're an Oklahoma boy just like me and uh, where are you from in Oklahoma I'm from the most southwestern town in Oklahoma Hollis Oklahoma right in the far southwest corner it's four miles west of Texas or six miles south to the Red River I sometimes market myself as the second DR from Hollis Oklahoma and then I'll ask if there's anybody with the University of Texas lineage in them because they'll recognize the first one as Daryl Royal the legendary football coach I didn't know Coach Royal, but uh, sometimes I ride on his coattails. (laughs) That's pretty cool. So what was it like growing up for you? What was kind of your childhood like? Did you spend a lot of time outdoors and and, uh, kind of those seeds being planted for you back then? Absolutely. I mean, of course, I'm 67 years old, so this is back during the early 60s. And uh, grew up with a BB gun in my hand from the time I was five until 15. That was all I ever wanted for Christmas was a new BB or, or later a pellet gun because I'd worn out my daisy and I had to get a crossman kind of thing. So always had my BB gun, always hunting sparrows or grew up hunting cottontails. And as you got older and, and you wanted to go hunting, well, there was only one kind of hunting, and that was quail hunting, which... Uh, now there's turkeys and deer and other things, but uh, I cut my teeth on quail hunting, and so that's where my passion's been. I often tell people that uh, when I was five years old, one of my earliest childhood memories was when uh, we lived about five miles south of Hollis, and on a spring day, the wind- kitchen window was open, and I was in the kitchen with my mom, and there was a bird whistling out on the back fence. And I tell people, or my, my mom asked me, she said, do you hear that bird? It's calling its name, Bob White. And I tell people here, 62 years later, it's still calling my name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And uh, um, I just heard some last weekend, you know, it's, it's, uh, quail face a lot of issues, you know. And um, I've seen, I'm, I'm only quail hunted a handful of times and, and um but i've noticed where where i hunt out here in texas just north of fredericksburg you know we have a lot of ebbs and flows with their population density and stuff like that and and um what are some of the um and and speaking on those terms like what are some of the issues with quail that we're facing and it's been an ongoing battle (coughs) for that species well you got to keep in mind that a quail is six inches tall and weighs six ounces and oftentimes when I'm giving a presentation to landowners, I'll say, okay, honey, we shrunk the kids. Shrink yourself down. Morph yourself down to those dimensions. And then ask yourself, what's after you? And then we begin to go around the room about the various threats that a quail faces. And I'm talking about primarily predation threats. So we go through, name 20 different predators that like to eat quail, their chicks, or their eggs. So quail's got a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges facing it. Uh, and then on top of that, certainly number one is habitat change. I worked for the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service for my career and over the last half of that was basically known as the quail guy kind of thing. And So when I would go to anywhere oh I-35 east of there and, and they'd say what's happened to the quail? I said well I probably work for the 
agency that had as much to do with the demise of the quail as anything in Texas, and that was the Extension Service, because our bread and butter was coastal Bermuda grass, nitrogen fertilizer, and a cow to two acres kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that type of agriculture and, and those kinds of changes from I-35 all the way to the Atlantic seacoast um, have really been the major challenge for Bob White quail. And then we have things like uh, weather, obviously, and we're still in the pits of a La Nina weather pattern right now, which is not good for us. Uh, vegetation changes, fire ants. I mean, if I go southeast of the Warren Ranch right here and ask people, what's wrong with your quail? They'll universally say fire ants. Mm. Well, correlation doesn't always imply causation, and there may be some other factors. But anyway, people have their cause du jour they'd like to trump or like to uh, campaign for as far as this is what's happened to quail. I just remind them that quail decline is not a single shot. It's a revolver. And there are multiple cylinders operating simultaneously. So they need to be step back sometime and just say, what is the real issue or what are the real issues here? And then number two, what can I do do about them and what can my neighbors do about them? Yeah. And over your career with AgriLife, has, what's, what's been the reception for people that you've talked to that, that want to improve habitat and stuff is like, I know it's kind of hard to get people to understand what they need to do. You know, I know in aspects of like Turkey, I'm very familiar with, with the, like the super stocking program that TPWD does here and, and the, the co-ops that are formed to release these birds on these various 20,000 plus tract acres of, of land, you know, burning, um, thinning all that stuff is it similar with quail in that aspect yeah it's i mean what Aldo leopold described is the axe plow cow and fire those are our basic habitat management tools and they're uh, probably as or more critical for bob whites as they are wild turkeys kind of thing because a quail is a smaller bird mm. a quail spends every night of its life on the ground turkeys don't they spend about yeah. if it's a hen Spends maybe 40 days a year on the ground. The rest of the time they're up in a tree. Uh, so, again, quail got a lot of threats. Uh, and as far as the reception of, or how receptive landowners are, just depends on where they're at in the state. I mean, I, I had a colleague, you may know her, Jenny Sanders, that uh, was very active in brigades for many years, was a product of brigades. And she did her master's at the Texas A&M on the different types of landowners different type of landowner ethics, motivations. Mm -hmm. And she basically said there were three kinds of landowners. One of them, one group was the born to the land. The second was the reborn to the land. And the third was ag business. The first kind, they're older, and they've been there, and they're the salt of the earth kind of generation. Uh, They take a lot of pride in their stewardship, and they know how important things like stocking rates and these kind of things are. Their offspring, who went off to the city and got mm-hmm. educated, but now they're retiring and moving back to the peace and tranquility that they re- recall as a child, that's the reborn to the land. And that's, uh, if you look at an organization, for example, Texas Wildlife Association or the Texas and Southwest Cattle Raisers, you see a lot of that, a lot of the uh, their membership is that proportion. Now, mm-hmm. those people have the wherewithal. They don't have to push the land like a lot of their uh, ancestors might have had to do as far as stocking and things like that. So the ethic is there, and sometimes the and more often I'd say the ability is there to take it a little bit easier on the land. 
And so those kind of people are very receptive to ideas about quail because, uh, I mean, the Bob White's whistle in the summertime is like lemonade and apple pie. Everybody wants it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They'd love to be able to say, you know, enjoy the Bob White or ideally have, you know, a dog and going out and hunting quail kind of thing. So the motivation for them is there. That third sector, ag business, is much more, I mean, they're dictated by the bottom line. Yeah. Uh, they're dictated by, their management is dictated by uh, being able to generate maximum revenue, if you will. And if it's not on this piece of property, I don't have any particular maternal bonds to this pas- this property. I'll graze it or plow it or farm it or whatever, but... If it's quote unquote used up, I'll move over and find another one, kind of thing. So the mm-hmm. the conservation ethic, as I would describe it at least, is not always as deeply rooted, pardon the pun, in that third sector. And as our population grows, we have more and more demands on the land. What does the John old John Denver song say? More people, more sorrows upon the land. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's pretty true. You know, the, just too many pilgrims, and uh, certainly right now we're. We're going to be faced to uh, look that square in the eye because you look at the whole total population growth and then you look at some demographic shifts and so forth. Not a very rosy picture for a lot of our wildlife situations. Yeah. I didn't think we could fit many more people down where I'm at, and they're moving in just by the thousands. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, square inch. fortunately uh, as you can appreciate, if you, if you live in western Oklahoma or west Texas, the uh, climate and so forth precludes a lot of the intensive agriculture. And I say that, and then I think about all the center pivots that have gone in over time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, again, that that has a lot of impacts for all of us. Yep. So, yeah, and then, uh, you know, these extreme weather events, it seems like we keep having, you know, like we've had just the hurricanes the last few years down there, and then we're in the drought again up here right now. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. We've had a lot of wildfires here lately and stuff, and... Um, Hopefully we don't get stuck in this all summer. Well, I just I did a podcast a couple of months ago for the Dr. Dale and Quail podcast with one of my board members for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. His name is Pete Delkus. Pete is the meteorologist for WFAA TV in Dallas and a big quail hunter. So we did a podcast on climate and weather and, uh, you know, trying to get the idea from him, you know, what is climate change and Mm-hmm. Are we responsible for it? And and he walked the line pretty pretty uh, carefully on that situation. What happens to us in West Texas again, by and large, is, is drought, La Nina patterns, and we're stuck in a about a two and a half year one right now. But what really scares me is when the climatologists refer to mega droughts, droughts that are twenty to fifty years mm-hmm. in length, and whew. I don't think we can survive in one of those. Yeah, I sure uh, hope we don't end up facing that. So, but um, we'll talk about um, kind of the the journey into the to Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch, how that happened, and how it's evolved, and where it's at today. Well, I can't dissect, I can't pull out anything, tease apart anything that's not involved with quail. And in this case, it wasn't involved with the Bob White Brigade, too, because back in 2004, I believe, we invited some people down from Pennsylvania uh, with the Richard King Mellon Foundation and with the Rough Grouse Society 
because they were interested in what we were doing with the brigades, and we saw them as a potential funder, and we were needing to raise some money, some mm -hmm. fairly large money. And so I began to say, what kind of crosshairs can I put on the Richard King Mellon Foundation to, to open the door? As you can appreciate, mm -hmm. you can't make cold calls on that kind of thing. you got to have somebody to yeah. help you infiltrate the, the situation. And so uh, it turns out that I had three different people that uh, had relations with them or knew of them or whatever. And so we were able to uh, get the uh, chairman of the board and... Uh, Prosser Mellon, and then uh, Mike Watson down for three successive years of quail hunting in West Texas. And when I first met him, I told him, I said, um, what you guys really need to do is buy a ranch in West Texas and let me manage it for quail research. And I didn't just say that flippantly because the Richard King Mellon Foundation out of Pittsburgh is big players in the conservation fund. Mm -hmm. And they also have a quail hunting um, plantation uh, down in uh, jo uh, southwest Georgia. So they're big players in tall timbers, which is kind of a wow of the quail world. We all yeah. want to be like tall timbers. And so anyway, we brought them out and showed them three great years, uh, about 2003, four, five, something like that, of quail hunting in West Texas. Uh, thanks to the ranchers that, you know, that hosted us and, uh, again, saw the the need to do that. I mean, they supported the Bob Brigade, so we had access to them. And then on the uh, the last of those three quail hunts in 2005, we were cleaning quail by the full moon, and the idea came up about we need to get some research started here in West Texas. We don't want to see what happened to quail from I-35 East. We don't want to see that in West Texas, not on our watch. Mm -hmm. And so about six months later, uh, one of the ranchers that hosted us and, and kind of had helped us get an angle on the foundation uh, called me and said uh, he'd gotten a call and said hey they'd like they'd be interested in buying a ranch in West Texas and letting us manage it for quail research and so about a year later uh, he called and said I think I found a plum and that plum was a 4700 acre ranch in uh, Fisher County between Sweetwater and Schneider and uh, the Mellon Foundation put up the money for that and so that was in 2007. It was deeded to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, which has managed it ever since, with mm -hmm. the mission of preserving Texas wild quail hunting heritage for this and future generations. That's incredible. So, and what kind of, um, what are some of the research projects over the years that y'all have done, or I'm, I'm sure, you know, continuously done, but some of the cool things y'all have been working on? Well, first of all, I guess the, and again, now we're working on a 15-year data set, which, you know, in research is pretty uncommon. Typically, you've got a two-year master's or a three-year Ph.D. kind mm -hmm. of thing, and then right. it, it kind of dries up after that. But we've had continuous, sustained research, thanks largely to uh, especially Park City's Quail Coalition. you got to have a you got to have a well-funded and very gracious source of revenue, you know, to allow you to continue and sustain that. So we've basically had quail radio collared, radio marked with transmitters that uh, we follow year-round. Mm -hmm. And so they allow us to tap in on their most secret situations where they're nesting, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of survival, uh, what kind of cause specific mortality, what's going to what's killing them on an annual basis and we've had that going for right at 15 years now so that is a and we also leg band we, we trap in a leg band quail in march and in november so we've leg banded somewhere over 15,000 quail 
over the last 15 years. And so that's a tremendous database, and and we'll continue to be able to mine that type of information as we move forward. But that's the heart of uh, a lot of what our research efforts do. Some of the really cool projects, I was speaking with one of your uh, one young lady here from mm-hmm. Louisiana that's uh-huh. a... Uh, that's a falconer. Yep. And when I found that out, I, I mentioned the name Jimmy Walker, and she knew Jimmy. Jimmy's from Amarillo, and Jimmy helped us with a project back in about 2010 where we asked the question, if we put radio collars on quail, do we radio handicap them? Do we predispose them to predation? Because if we do, then our population estimates on survival and so forth right. are biased, if they are. So we, academically, uh, that was being thrown out as an issue. And so we thought, well, here's an in vivo test. We can bring Vinny down and his goshawk. He had a Finnish goshawk named Vinny. And so we would have, uh, <laughs> we'd walk onto a covey of Bob White's, beep, 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 beep. And we know there's two. 10 birds in this covey, and five of them are wearing radio transmitters, and then we'd walk in there to flush those birds. And could Vinny the goshawk, through whatever means, target the birds that were radio marked? Did they fly slightly slower? Did they make some noise when their wings might have hit the antenna? Yeah. Whatever kind of thing. But did he, could he develop any kind of cue that would allow him to target those birds? Turns out, we learned two important things from that. Uh, one is that those birds are incredibly... Uh, nervous, scared of raptors. And so Vinny would make some noise as we were approaching the covey. And uh, the young man that I had working for me, Barrett, Barrett had size 13 shoes. And he would walk around trying to flush those quail out of the grass. We know they're right here by telemetry. We know they're right here in front of us, but none of them will fly. And Barrett stepped on more quail with those size 13 (laughs) shoes because they wouldn't flush as opposed to what Vinny was able to catch. But uh, being able, as a quail manager, being able to watch how those quail responded to that threat and what kind of cover they selected for to get away from that threat. And I often tell people that that Bob White would rather face you in a Benelli shotgun with an extended magazine than it would face that Cooper's Hawk yeah. kind of thing. And probably for good reason. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. So. <laughs> Man, I'm uh, I'm excited to see the birds in action here. I think uh, she brought a kestrel with her, Brittany, and a goshawk. So that's a that's a one thing I've never been really around or known anybody that's done that. You know. Well, I, I so. tell quail managers, if you ever have an opportunity to follow a falconer around, do it. Mm-hmm. And again, observe. I you know I learned something not long ago. It's a uh, he's in church last last week, and the visiting preacher spoke of OODA loops. And this may be common jargon to, to most of you. OODA, O-O-D-A, and it was developed by a fighter pilot, I think, back during the 50s. And it was basically a, a four-step cycle. Observe, orient, uh, decision, and... Uh, <laughs> forget what the A stood for. But regardless, it's basically learn from your experiences and be able to know what your reaction is going to be. If you're faced with this threat, mm-hmm. if you react to it in a tenth of a second and your colleague reacts to it in a half a second, you've got the upper hand. Mm-hmm. And so uh, being able to observe how quail respond to those threats, various threats, and then what does that mean for the quail manager? What kind of habitat, what kind of storm shelters do you need to allow that quail to evade and get away from those birds uh, again, it was a it was a tremendous teacher being able to watch those rap, watch the goshawk, and the goshawk was basically a 
a European equivalent of what our uh, Cooper's Hawk is for quail. So. Right. Yeah. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's incredible. So, well, I know um, reading some over the years of what y'all have done and some of the issues I've faced over there is the issue with the 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 paras the parasitic problems up there kind of talk a little bit about that and and kind of where that came from well each year <clears throat> i have an I have an advisory committee that we'd meet in august and uh, about 15 or so people come in various walks of life but all of them again had some quail thread to them and i always i have what i call a trap line of, of quail enthusiasts that i will poll each year in september saying what's your quail forecast because when I print my quail forecast in October, a lot of people are interested in that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so I won Roy Wilson. Roy, shout out to him because uh, at the time, Crooked River Outfitters there in um, Jones County. And that's where we hosted the Bible Propagate for the first 15 years. And so Roy was an integral part of all that. But uh, Roy was an outfitter, one of the better known outfitters for quail in, in North Texas. And I, he, at that advisory meeting i was visiting with him informally and i said what's your forecast this year roy and this was in 2009 august 2009 he said i really don't know he said i've just got to where i really don't think i in august i don't think i can have any confidence in my prediction if i tell you we're going to be a two or a nine on a scale of 110 and so uh, when we had a board meeting uh, for the rolling plains quail research foundation right after that i was relaying that story and I've always been one that has some interest in disease in quail management now professionals most professionals poo ha ha the whole idea about disease it's habitat 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 yeah. kind of thing well I saw the, the blue quail decline disappear over a very short period in southwestern Oklahoma back in about 2008 and so I could never resolve that if I didn't include disease in there somewhere. So anyway, I talked to my board. Uh, at the time, we had $2 million in our bank account. And our board president, Rick Snap, said, you've always been interested in talking about this disease. Here's $2 million. Spend it. We won't get to the bottom of this. So I invited in uh, 11 colleagues from various uh, institutions, Texas Tech, A&M Kingsville, Texas A&M Pet School, and we sat down in February of 2011 and devised the plan, a project that I called Operation Idiopathic Decline. Idiopathic is medical jargon for the doctor don't know. So if you go in, have a checkup, and walk out there, walk out nervously and say, what's wrong, doc? And he said, your issue is idiopathic. That's just his way of saying, it. I really don't know. Yeah. And so... It's what you don't want to hear. Uh, what you don't want to hear. And, but again, as as a quail guru, uh, it, it hurts you to say you don't know, but you got to be honest with yourself. And so we uh, sat down and, and developed eight different projects, everything from uh, pesticides to fire ants to uh, weather and 
several of them dealt with disease. Mm-hmm. Um, bacterial diseases, arthropod-borne diseases like West Nile virus, and then parasites. And the parasites took two forms, if you will, the microparasites like coccidia, and then the macroparasites like various worms. And so the of those eight projects, the one that gained the most traction and basically brought our focus uh, over the three years, a three-year project involving trapping quail. We trapped over 2,000 quail in 32 different counties across western Oklahoma and, and Texas and sent uh, X number up and down to the uh, veterinary diagnostic lab at Texas A&M and had them posted and so forth. Uh, when, when the smoke cleared three years later, the ones that uh, garnered our most attention were especially two worms, one that resides in the eye, the Mm -hmm. eye worm, and the other one that resides down in the lower gut, the cecal worm. The eye worm is the one that has received the most attention. It resides behind the third membrane of the eye called the nictitating membrane and behind the bird's eyeball. And uh, there are some glands back there. And these are not microscopic worms. If you think about a mechanical pencil, the the lead in a mechanical pencil, they're almost that diameter, and they'll be up to a half inch, maybe three-quarters inch long. So you can see them with your naked eye, and we've seen anywhere from an average maybe of uh, 20 of those eye worms, maybe up to an average of 60. Uh, So anyway, we spent over the next seven years, we've We've invested a lot of money, time, and effort with Dr. Ron Kendall up at the uh, wildlife with the uh, Texas Tech University's wildlife pathology uh, lab up there, Dr. Kendall. And so he is on the cusp of releasing a medicated feed that would kill both the eye worm and the cecal worm. So it'll be. Okay. And that's where we're at with that. Uh, so we don't know if it's the issue. Like I said, again, there are. It's a revolver, yeah, multiple things. It's a contributing factor, though. But we'd like to, uh, we're anxious to see if, if we can control the worms and then indeed see population rebounds. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I, I know I'd seen, because I follow the the ranch's social media pages and stuff, and y'all had posted quite a bit about the eye worm and, and, and that kind of thing, which is just kind of fascinating because I never heard about that. Is that, is it something that's, been around forever and we're just now studying it or a new onset probably although the first record of it in bob white's was in about 1959 on the matador wildlife management area which is um near paducah texas Mm -hmm. they were first identified by a guy named a.s jackson back then unfortunately between uh 1962 or so and 2012, so that's what, 40 years, yeah. there wasn't really anybody studying them. When you did, I did my master's, part of my master's at Oklahoma State University was on endoparasites, the worms of a bob white and blue quail. But I was never told to look in the eye. Yeah. So I looked in the guts, and here's the results here. Uh, but no one paid attention to the eye worms. So we don't know what the dynamics of it were during that 40-year hmm. period. We don't know if they've been around since time began. Uh, and we don't know if, um, is there something that we're doing anthropically, management-wise, is there something we're doing that's caused them to increase over time? We do know that uh, they involve a, an intermediate host, and the more, one of the more common intermediate hosts 
is what's called the slant-faced grasshoppers. And they've done this by DNA analysis, looking for the eyeworms in the various grasshoppers. And so uh, have we done something with our fire management regimes, with our grazing or lack thereof, something that's promoted uh, that population of that that community of grasshoppers and then created yeah. the problem. So it's it's fascinating work. So is it, have they been found in other species like like turkey or? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, they've been found in other species. Uh, lesser prairie chickens, for example, have okay. quite a few of them. Well, lesser prairie chickens, they're right on the cusp of extinction. Could ours be involved in it? We don't know. Yeah. But uh, the, the one on the turkeys was fascinating to us. And so back in about 2014, I knew of a particular rancher up in the Panhandle that uh, had a lot of turkeys, but he was a quail hunter. He didn't care that much about turkeys. And if you go to visit with people from Kansas and Missouri, uh, especially 15, 20 years ago, they would argue that the rise in the turkey population coincided with the demise of the Bob Whites. So, again, people always take that and think cause and effect. Uh, They would argue that turkeys were velociraptors on the quail chicks. So we had a chance to look at the diets of turkeys uh, during the uh, May and June time period, which is right at the peak of nesting, and we also did uh, parasite, uh, looking for parasites. Yeah. And I'll uh, credit uh, my successor, who's now taken over the research ranch, research foundation, that's Dr. Brad Kubechka. Now, Brad was a master's student at the time and was just doing this kind of on the side. But we had a ranch that allowed us to shoot you know, with the proper permits. We shot 100 uh, I think it was like 96 turkeys during the period of May 15th to June 15th. Again, right to hide the nesting. We were curious, did we find any eggs, quail eggs, or chicks in the diet? We didn't. Yeah. So kind of a myth, myth buster as far as what happened there. But we also took that opportunity to look at the eye worms. And as I recall, we only found eye worms in one turkey. And that's a ranch where we had had an incidence of maybe 60 to 70% of the Bob Whites had eye worms. So... Why? You know, turkeys, yeah. just a big quail. Well, they eat a lot of grasshoppers. That's why I was <laughs> They asking. eat a lot of grasshoppers. So. But we think, and again, we haven't been approved this, but we think because of the uh, distance between their crop, the craw, as Grandpa would call it, that's where the eyeworms emerge from the grasshoppers is in the mm-hmm. craw. And then they've got to travel up the esophagus and into the um, um, orbital uh, optic nerve, or yeah. you know, whatever. Anyway, the the duct that leads up to the eye, and so you know that might be a distance of an inch in a bobwhite quail. It might be an mm. in a distance of five to six inches in turkey. So yeah. we don't know if it's just a mechanical issue because they're eating Same bugs thing. that should have been infected with uh, with the eyeworm larvae, yet they're not getting the eyeworm for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. We've had s- we've had to do some similar studies down on the coast. Um, just because people were, were blaming a species predating on other species. And one that I thought was just kind of off the wall personally, but, you know, we had to um, sample a large number of alligator gar and see if they were predating on speckled sea trout. And, of course, we never found any predation evidence of that whatsoever. You know, they're mostly eating rough fish and, and, and stuff. and uh, But, you know, we... It's one of the things that come up, you know, and, and but I don't know. That's crazy. That's that's an interesting story, though, and I encourage people to, to look into that, look at some of that research that y'all have done. I can go to quailresearch.org, and we have a, publish an annual report, publish a monthly newsletter, and then, again, 
podcasts, social media. So yeah. plenty of opportunities if you're interested in learning more about that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So so what to today, what is your role with the foundation and stuff? Because I know you've kind of stepped back a little bit and and um, still still doing a lot of stuff with, with it. But um, what are you doing these days? Well, I... In June, in June of uh, last year, 2021, Dr. Kubechka succeeded me as executive director, but I still work half-time as what's called a director of, of uh, outreach. Okay. So basically, I'm not as a, in a fundraising mode as much, mm-hmm. and I'm glad for this. I don't have to be in a fundraising mode all the time, uh, and I get to do more of the things that I really enjoy doing, like on-site visits. This doctor still makes house calls, and uh, doing the newsletter. I've, I've written and popular writing, probably written maybe 1,200, 1,300 articles over my career, and I enjoy writing. I mean, writing yeah. is cathartic for me, and then I get to do um, the podcast, which has been going about three years, and I've really enjoyed doing yeah. that. So I get to do the uh, outreach kind of things, and, and that's kind of my forte. Yeah, that is the fun side of things, you know, so um, getting to talk to people and stuff and, and everything. So, well, that's cool. What's well, What was your uh, – I got to ask you, because I've had a couple people on that were uh, Cowboys and went to Oklahoma State and stuff, but uh, what was kind of your experience there in Stillwater? How would that, how'd that go for you? Well, when I went to, I got my undergraduate degree in biology at Southwestern Oklahoma State University in Weatherford, Oklahoma, which mm-hmm. is a pharmacy school. And I learned pretty quickly, what do you do with a BS in biology except go to grad school? And so I uh, applied for grad school at Oklahoma State and was accepted, but I didn't have a funded project. I mean, I had an advisor who took me on, but there was no funding for any kind of a project. Mm. So I basically had to work for other graduate students, you know, and help my wife support our family kind of thing and come up with a project that I could do on my own with minimal expense, which was looking at the diets and parasites of bobwhite and scale quail where they occur sympatrically, they're on the same range, uh, which was my stomping grounds there south of Hollis, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So that allowed me to, to hunt quail and, and then use the, the specimens, the cadavers there to complete my research. And uh, from there, I had a great time at OSU. Uh, uh, it's a great school. Uh, I went from there out to Texas Tech and had a, another a, a great experience out there. So I'm very high on Oklahoma State as, you know, as a career as a, college choice. It's a you know it's a big part of our 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 lives too. I mean it's where me and my wife met and and uh, love Stillwater, love that town. So go Pokes and uh, and stuff. But uh, well, I think um, you know this this. Uh, this current year we're in right now, 2022, this this season, you know, is um, it's a big year for the Texas Brigades program. And um, I'd like to jump in, go ahead and jump in and kind of talk about the brigades. And uh, I've heard this story a lot of times from you, but, you know, where this idea for this program came from and just your thoughts on the progression of the program over the last 30 years and where it's at today, which is as big as it's ever been. Well, I tell people that uh, in 1994, the movie Forrest Gump came out. That was the year we started the East Texas Bobwhite Brigade. The Rolling Plains Bobwhite Brigade started in 1993. But in, um, as I, and I'm a Forrest Gump fan. I watch it <laughs> over and over again. I could, I could cite, you know, every sentence kind of thing. But, um, Basically, uh, I tell people that 
the Bob White Brigade resulted in what I call a Bob White Line Epiphany. I was traveling from San Angelo, where I'd just gotten through giving a program to the a lunch program to the, one of the Lions clubs, and I was traveling to Childress, Texas, which is roughly 220 miles away, to give a talk to 4-H leaders on wildlife in general. I mean, I was ever bit a general practitioner. I didn't have any specific yeah. focus, but quail were my love. And somewhere north of Aspermont, if you've ever traveled in West Texas, up, up just north of 83, and just north of Aspermont on Highway 83, lonely stretch of road. And literally the phrase, Bob White Brigade, came into my mind. It was the white feather that floated into Forrest Gump's life, except in my case it was a Bob White feather. And I got to thinking, what does this mean? And, I mean, I ruminated on it uh, during the trip. Apparently when I got back, I kind of had an idea, but most of the programs that I give don't require a Ph.D. in wildlife management. They're general awareness kinds of things. Why can't we train ambassadors and equip them and in extension work we do that with master gardeners and those kind of things why can't we do that with youth and capture the energy and vitality of youth sprinkle them as they go forth and spread the the gospel of conservation Mm -hmm. and so i sat down with about a half dozen people and uh, we we met in the courtroom in albany texas Uh, that was in january of 1993 held our first camp in june of that year and if you remember Forrest Gump on his when he was running, he just you know he's run across the country two or three times, and they'd interview him, and he said, "I just felt like running." And I've had people say, "Did you have this master plan thirty years ago that you were going to see the brigades uh, mushroom into a total now I think of nine camps, mm-hmm. various species?" I said, "I just felt like running," kind of thing. I, I didn't. I didn't put any foresight into where we were going to be 30 years from now. It's just been one of those deals where imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And so we find people like you and Charis and others that are heavily invested in coastal fisheries and so mm-hmm. forth or in ranching or, or whitetails or whatever the case yeah. might be and plant that seed. So I, in, in many respects, I've kind of served as a Johnny Appleseed and going along planting seeds and then help you know, help that seed to germinate and grow. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the, I'm always looking for quotations. Uh, one I saw in Gatesville, Texas on the church marquee was one generation plants the tree and another enjoys the shade. And that just embodies what we're trying to do with Texas Brigades. We're taking these 15-year-olds, equipping them with critical thinking and communication skills and a little bit of knowledge about conservation and then challenging them to go out and, mm-hmm. and again, be proponents i mean I, I always tell people we're not trying to raise we're not trying to to recruit or develop a parks and wildlife biologist or a game warden no we get some of those and yeah, always proud of them. but what I, you're really going to hear me jump and shout and do a double somersault when i find out that a federal judge went to the brigades because i want somebody in those leadership positions that understand conservation yeah. and that's our ultimate goal absolutely that's what got us hook, line, and sinker. I mean, I didn't know what we were getting into. You know, our first, um, the first time we, you know, we got on board, said, yeah, we'll do this and this and that. And then we went to check out the camp at Rolling Plains the, before the Bass Brigade, which was the first year it was held here at the Warren Ranch. And, uh, you know, I kind of looked at my wife and I was just like, like this is the real deal. It's like, I've never seen a lot of kids camps. We've helped with a lot of things in that nature and, uh, but um, once we got got in that first year, you know, immediately I think our thought was, at the time I believe it was, um, 
the two Bob White camps. I think there was maybe one buckskin. I can't remember. Um, and bass. And uh, I think uh, maybe waterfowl was going on at the time. But we're like, we're on the coast. Like, I think eventually it's like they need to incorporate that, you know, kind of help bring it full circle. And I think that was kind of our ultimate goal after that first year was like working our way towards where we are now with Coastal Brigade. And and, and, uh, and congratulations to you and, and your committee and for y'all's commitment because, I, to my knowledge, Coastal Brigade is probably our most successful camp in terms of currently in the recruiting game. I mean, it's as the founding member of the Rolling Plains Bob Bob Brigade, we're dinosaurs. Quail hunting is just not topical anymore. So kids today that they don't reg quail don't register with them, and yeah. we find it more and more difficult each year to recruit. But other programs like the Ranch Brigade and uh, Coastal Brigade uh, again are, are popular. I mean, I'll, I chuckle when I go out to the Permian Basin, Midland, Odessa, and talk to a group of high school youth, maybe juniors in high school. What are you going to be when you grow up? A marine biologist. Yeah. And, and they've got the Shamu syndrome <laughs> pretty bad <laughs> because of all mean. places that you dream about being a marine biologist, uh, Odessa's not necessarily one of them. Yeah. And it, it's been, um, you know, and I appreciate that, but I mean, we, we you know, promoting the brigades in general is just, um, it's, it's, it's easy to do, you know, for us when we go out and, and do outreach events and stuff and just... I mean, I think once you're involved with brigades, like, you're always telling people about the program. No matter what, you can run into somebody at a restaurant, you know, and something comes up. And so, yeah, it's like, you need to get your kids involved in this, you know. And, and um, but I think the the magic of brigades, which you'll, I know, agree on is, man, that fifth day at camp, you know, it's just like, you look at what transpired over that week. I remember an instance here at the Warren Ranch with Bass Brigade probably in, 2013 or something we had a young lady who came and never been away from home um was very homesick we thought we was going to have to have her parents come pick her up it was it was, it was a pretty intense situation for her you know and it's a brigades is is uh you know it's not a drop off your kid and parents go play like these kids are it's an intensive schedule it's rigorous but the kids eat it up. I mean, they, they just jump all over it. And uh, and this girl, you know, just I think the homesick part kind of got to her, and we kind of calmed her down, and, and several of the instructors talked to her. And, and um, you know, by the end of that week, she was our top cadet. It's, <laughs> it's, it's always heartwarming, and, and we can all, <coughs> ever camp could share mm -hmm. that kind of success story where you wrote somebody off on the morning of day two. Yeah. Here they are on the morning, day five, calling the cadence, a little mousy girl, and wouldn't speak up, and now she's calling, serving as the cadence caller yeah. for that uh, particular group and so forth. And, and again, that's, as an adult, and I think you'll f feel the same, and everybody that becomes an indentured servant to the brigades, that's what fuels us, you know. Mm -hmm. we, I believe, we believe that we've helped prepare that young, that young person for a better toehold on life than what mm -hmm. we had. And so, again, as we do so, I often, I have bird dogs, and I got good bird dogs. And I tell people, or when I take somebody quail hunting, they'll say, did you train your dogs yourself? I said, I'm not a dog trainer. I said, all I did was give my dogs plenty of opportunity <coughs> to express their innate potential and then have them mentor under a good dog.
because I think they get so much more learning from their mothers than, than I'm ever going to be able to teach them kind of yeah. thing. So just being able to put them, you know, give them the, the basic skills, give them the woe command, if you will, and then be able to put them in a situation where competition, and competition in a good way, allows those individuals to grow. We start our kids out, uh, they don't have their regular name tag. Uh, yeah. We give them a Ziploc bag with a chunk of coal in it, chunk of car, charcoal, and just their name is just written on a piece of masking tape. And in order for them to graduate from that and get their real name tag, they have to recite what we call their silver bullet, an inspirational quotation. Well, that's that's a third of these kids' first opportunity to public speaking, and they yeah. they are deadly afraid. I can relate to that. I mean, mm-hmm. I used to feel like that. Me too. And so when we even empowered those youngsters to be able to realize the uh, the value of the spoken word and the written word and be able to uh, show some mastery of that, again, it's contagious, and it helps yeah. them throughout life. Well, 100%. We wouldn't be sitting here today without the Brigades program right, right here just because of what um, the effect it had on the ranch manager's daughter, Shelby. That's so, right. And... Um, I do want to ask you a, a funny question. So you're known for nicknaming all the cadets and everybody. How'd that come about? And what would your nickname for me be? <laughs> well, nicknames were a part of my upbringing. A small town, rural community. I mean, there was there was somebody named Shotgun. There was somebody named Twenty Two. There was somebody named High Pockets. You know, everybody had a nickname. Uh, I ran. I hunted with a, a fellow a year younger than me. His, we called him Ziffle on the old Green Acres TV show, and, and I became Turkey Red, and then my BFF is named Coondog. So, again, we just grew up. That was part of our culture. And so when I started the brigades, for whatever reason, uh, I just began to give nicknames to kids. And I, I tell them, I said, you know, five years from now, 25 years from now, I won't remember your real name. I hope I can remember your nickname. And in the case we just talked about, uh, Shelby is the young lady's name, and she came in about, I don't know, maybe 2009 or 10. Yeah. And she was from Coleman County. Oh, and I think Coleman, I think Coleman Lantern. So her nickname became Lantern. <laughs> and uh, what would I name Derek York? I think maybe Sergeant, Sergeant York. I mean, when you, you tell me your name or where you're from, and typically, it's just the first thing that pops into my mind yeah. because that's where I'm going to fall back on when it comes time to retrieve that. That's funny. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Dale. So, well, um, yeah, and it's it's been a blast. I'm so looking forward to to this summer's programs. And, um, you know, COVID kind of set us back a little bit like everybody else. Um, but we're, uh, we're lucky and had our 5th Battalion last year, a year late, I will say. Um, and uh, having our sixth this year so but um, thank you for all you've done and all you're still doing and um, we'll see uh, and hopefully see you down there at our camp sometime I'd love to get you down there that's one of the nine camps that we've got I think I've made all of them but um, but coast I have made coastal and then the, the new waterfowl brigade yeah. I went to the old one but it had a transition. Yep. So uh, yeah, there's two away from each other. There's so. two that I've got to make at some point in time, and I hope I can do that before my health declines. 
Well, we'll, uh, we'll make it happen. So, Dale, I appreciate it, man. Thank, Thank you so much, brother. Thank you. It's been good to visit with you, Derek, and uh, more power to you, and good luck with your podcast. All right. Thanks, sir. Offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night. Floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.